Okay, good morning ladies and gentlemen and welcome back to Kabbalah and Coffee. This is our post Snowpocalypse number 2 edition. Glad to see everybody's here safe and sound and in good health and in good spirits. I'm sure. What was my prom- remind me? Oh, what, in the email? People still read emails? What? I thought emails were so like uh, 2002 or something. Right? So like five minutes ago. Or even 2013. Alright, well, it's good to see everybody. It's good to see everybody. What I think is that, you know, after we've all been cooped up in our homes or in our offices or wherever we've been for the last, uh, you know, week or so, it's good to be out, it's good to be together, it's good to be connected, and it's good to be studying Kabbalah with friends and, uh, and all of you. So, let us begin. There's a lot to talk about today. So, last week, I tried to clarify stuff. And in the process, it looks like things got a little bit tricky. But, here's the good news. The good news is that there's another week, another opportunity, and so we can, we can give it a shot once again. So last week I gave the example of different ways, not different ways, but different, different motivations to, this is an example, this is not like what it says in the text, but this is an example of what the text is saying. There are different motivations that a person can have for deciding to eat healthier, to exercise more, to take care of themselves, etc., what are the motivations? So, t- so, you can typically divide them along these lines. A person says, it makes sense that I should eat healthier, that I should exercise more. It's a new year, perhaps. It's a new week. It's a post-ice storm world. It's a new reality. The ice age has melted. And so now, here's what I want to do. This is what it makes sense to do. I I, I like this idea. I feel good about this idea. This is what I'm going to do. Take a new resolution. That's one way of doing it. Another way of doing it is where a person says, I'm not taking the resolution because it makes sense to me, but I'm taking this resolution because this is something that I know is important to somebody else. And because I value that other person, So therefore, I'm going to do this. In other words, I'm committing to something, not for myself, not because it makes sense to me, but because somebody, because it makes, really because it makes sense to somebody else, and even though it doesn't necessarily, it's not intuitively or it's not intellectually what I would choose on my own, but since I respect or since I love or since I care about whatever, somebody else, and that's what somebody else wants, so I'm going to defer to that other person's opinion, or idea, or suggestion, or resolution for me. And by the way, we always have good ideas for other people. Right? We have the best ideas. Uh, we are the best advisors when it comes to other people. It's fantastic. It's like somebody comes at you with a problem. Oh man, I got a 12-point plan for you. 
Do I have this nailed down? You need to do this and that and the other. And when you have a doubt, this is what you should do. When it comes to our own stuff, forget about it. That's one of the reasons why God, create, why God created a world with more than one person. That's like one of the... It says in Pirkei Ava, it says, K'nei l'cha chaver. Acquire for yourself a good friend. I say l'cha rav. Get a teacher. Why? Because we need others in our lives. To provide guidance, to provide direction, to provide a good friend, a mentor, whatever it is. You need, we need others in our lives. But the reality is that we're, it's easier to advise others. So, again, another motivation. If it's not coming from my own intellect, from my own um, understanding. It could be coming from somebody else's suggestion. Even if I, if I don't understand it so well. Or even if it's not something that I would have come to on my own. But I can say, you know what, I'll defer to that. If, if this will make you happy, I'll do it. I'll start eating healthier and exercising. In this example. The third pathway to this, we said last week, or I said last week, was when, God forbid, somebody goes into the doctor and the doctor says, if you continue eating and not exercising the way you are, in other words, if you continue your current lifestyle, you have 6 to 12 months to live. And the person says, "Uh uh-oh, that doesn't sound good. I think I would like to live longer than 6 to 12 months. Doctor, what do I need to do? And I asked the question last week. I said, which one do you think, which commitment do you think will have a greater chance of lasting longer? The one that's born of my understanding, the one that's born of somebody else's suggestion, or the one that's born of me feeling my mortality, but really more me feeling, me asserting my desire to live. And me connecting my life with my eating habits. So clearly it's number three. Right? We agree with it? Yeah? Alright, good. I think we can all agree on that. That the third, it's like, you know, for example, smoking. I can decide that I want to quit because it costs too much money, because it, you know, uh, it's, you know, my clothes, my hair, whatever it is, it has, an, it picks up the smell of the cigarettes. So it's an intellectual reason. I can decide to quit because somebody else wants me to quit. Or I can decide to quit because I know that my life depends on it. One of them, I'm not saying which one, one of them has a likelier chance of succeeding. I think. This is without ever having smoked before, but this is, from, from, from what I can imagine, option number three would be the most... Um, Sustainable choice. And Rabbi, what's your comment on, on people that uh, have lung cancer, have a tube put in their their throat, and then they smoke through the tube? So that's yeah. Look, if so, it's it's within the human condition. There's the possibility to be hooked on something to the point that even when it's destructive, you can't stop. I mean, that's part of. You look at Pharaoh. This is, we have this illustration in the Torah. Everything in life has an origin in Torah. The good, bad, and the ugly. You can always find the source. The source for that type of behavior, that destructive, that, in a sense, addiction to bad behavior to the point that it's actually destroying yourself, the, the, the paradigm, the, the prototype, the, the father, if you will, in the Torah of that, of that type of behavior is Pharaoh, who won't let the Jews go, even though it's killing him. It's, it's destroying him. He's literally getting afflicted. He can't let go. 
And so God says, I'm going to harden his heart. Or I'm going to harden your heart. So the commentaries ask the question, so if God is hardening the heart, so it doesn't seem fair. Right? If God is hardening his heart, so he took away the free choice. So some of the commentaries explain, God didn't take away free choice. God created the possibility for somebody to be so addicted, so addicted to something that they can't even stop themselves. Like bagels. Like bagels. <laughs> bagels is another question. That question is if a bagel on Sunday morning... Anyway, so here's the deal. Does, it make, does this make sense what I said about Pharaoh? In other words, some say that it's not... Because everyone, everyone with our, with our you know, forward-thinking mindset, we say, wait, it's not fair. You're punishing Pharaoh. God, you took away his free choice. You're hardening his heart. How can you harden his heart and then punish him? It's not fair. So the commentaries explain. The different answer is given. Some, but a primary, I forget who, maybe Nachmanides, Ramban, says that it's, it's not so much that God hardened his heart. Now, Nachmanides says something else. Maybe Ramban, maybe Maimonides. It's not so much God hardened his heart, but God created the reality of the human being such that a person can, after repeated, after getting stuck in a certain pattern, a person can get so stuck in that pattern that even when they recognize that it's destroying them and those that they care about, they sometimes might feel powerless to stop. So is it possible that a person can have a tube down their, down their throat and still have a craving to smoke? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 100%. So is, is, are you saying that that's not So what I'm saying is, that's a good question. What I'm saying is, at the end of the day, there is still free will. On some level. What do I mean by that? What I mean is, that there's always, there's always a way to get out. There's always a way to get out. Is it going to be easy to get out? At a certain point... At a certain point, the, the, the way out is, is much more difficult. For example, it says that somebody who sins and says, I'm sinning because I know I can do tshuva, I can repent, that person is not given the opportunity to repent. That's what it says. The Talmud says it. Somebody that says, ashuv, I will sin, and then I will do teshuva, I will return, I'll repent. Ein maspikin biyado lasot shuva. They're not given the opportunity in their hands to do tshuva. No, it doesn't say that. It says they're not given the opportunity to do it. So the Alta Rebbe Tanya says, what does it mean? Nothing stands in the way of tshuva. So what does it mean? He says, what it means is you're not given the easy opportunity to do it. But if you seize the moment, if you fight, if you fight for it, of course you can do it. Of course you can come back from anything. So can you break, can you break a habit that is so ingrained and you, of course you can. Is it going to be profoundly difficult? It will be. And the more you do something, the more profoundly difficult it's going to be. But is it possible? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So, last week, we got to a place where we said that the reason why... So then I asked the question. I don't know if I did, but let's just pretend I did. Ask the question, so why is it that the third... The third path to healthy eating and more exercise, why is it the more sustainable path? It's not the one where I decided, hey, it sounds like a good idea. It's not the one that I decided, hey, let me do what the other person wants me to do. It's the one where I recognize that my life is on the line. Why is that likely going to produce a more lasting commitment on my end? 
Why? That it will, I think most of us agree to agree with, and if not, then take my word for it. <laughs> That's number two. No, if not... But the question is now, the question on the table now is why? Why is it that that's the one that will get a person to actually change? Why is it then, let's talk about smoking. When it comes to smoking, I can decide, wait, it's too much money, or I can decide, oh, well, well, you know, my spouse doesn't want me to. But it's when the doctor says, your life is in danger, that it really wakes me up. Why? Why? I know, I know what it does. It causes a sense of urgency, and therefore you make a, a, a really strong and true commitment. And you're always conscious of it. Why? It's the ultimate consequence. It's the, because. the ultimate consequence. What else? I don't think there's an answer for that. Because after smoking. Oh, oh I, li- I actually like that answer. Because... Tell me, explain why. Well, because my mother is a prime example. She died of lung cancer at the age of 68 because she could not quit smoking. She could not. The doctors told her exactly right. what you're saying. And she, and she couldn't. She could not. No, it just. So I, I don't know if there's an eight or. A so what? I, so so that's a. So that, that, thank you for sharing that because that 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 also goes to show that it it, do, it doesn't always work. In other words, even if the doctor tells a person that this is the this these are the stakes, or this is at stake, then uh, it it still may not it still may not work. The question is when it does work. Why does it work more effectively? So this is what I would say. What about, I think. Okay, okay, good. That's a little bit spiritual. No, I agree with that on a spiritual level. But I was even speaking about more on a, on a, on a biological level. Because he's an authoritarian that you recognize someone who has... But it's more than that. But it's more than that. It's not, uh, parents can also tell you, hey, it's really not good to do this. And you're like, yeah, whatever, you blow it off. You stopped smoking. Forget about it. Done. Okay. So, so what? So, what is it about that experience of pregnancy in this example, or about the mortality in the other example? What is it about that news that creates such a that puts everything in such clear and stark terms? What is it about it that it does? I know what it does. Here's the way I want to phrase it. And this is going to be what I think where we got. There was like, there's sometimes in life there are seams. Seams that like. Yes. Yeah, not things seem to be. There are seams, and sometimes we get. It it could be such a slight and subtle seam, you you can't notice it until you get, get stuck on it. So here's where I think the conversation got a little stuck last week. And I was thinking about it a lot. I think this is the key point. We talk about getting in touch with the core of who we are. But we use terms such as getting in touch, which are so vague that they cease to mean anything. Are you in touch with your inner self? Are you in touch with your core? What does it mean to be in touch? I want to share with you two models of being in touch. You can be in touch here. You can be in touch here. And I don't mean intellectually or emotionally, but I mean intellectually and experientially. And here's the way we can distinguish. I can know that life is precious. And I can know 
that my life is valuable. And I can know that this behavior is not healthy for my life. I can know, 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 with a K and a W and N-O in between. I can know all of this, but it might not actually change anything about me. Why? Because knowledge in and of itself doesn't compel behavior. And the clear and the, the Talmudic example that we've cited many times in this class is Ganva, and I'm going to say it in the Aramaic because we're all proficient in that language. Ganva apum machtarta rachmana karya. Right? In fact, he was going to give me a heck yeah, but he just went with the yeah. Ganva. What's a ganav? A thief. Apum machtarta. As he's borrowing through the home, Rahmana Karya, he calls upon God. This is the, right, we've all we've cited this many times. The thief that's about to break in the home. He's praying, oh my god, I pray, let me not get caught. And the question is, what is going on here? You're you're about to break into a home, you're about to violate a few of the commandments. Namely, thou shalt not steal. Which, by the way, of the Ten Commandments, that actually refers to kidnapping. That's another story. That's for another, that's for another Talmudic discussion. But there is also a prohibition against straight-up theft. and other, Less uh, non-kidnapping, just regular standard theft. So, the person is about to violate this. And they know it's wrong on some level. Because they don't want to get caught. If they thought it was right, then they would be like, yo, I want to be on the papers for this. They know that it's not, that on some level it's not cool. And because of this, what are they doing? They're praying to God. And by the way, the, my follow-up comment every time I say this story, because I feel this for myself, is that it's easy to point fingers and laugh at that ganif, at that thief, but we do this all the time. We all do things that we hope no one would ever catch us doing. And we say, oh, like... Oh, please God, let no one know about this. So what's going on? We know it's not okay. We know it's not healthy. We know we're better than this. We know, we know, we know. It doesn't change anything. What's the, what's the answer? It's not an answer. It's an observation. The observation is that our knowledge of something, even if it's very deep and very true, doesn't always compel behavior. It could. We, could. we could learn something, learn a new piece of information, and that can change our lives. It can happen. But for many of us, but, but it's not foolproof. It's not foolproof because there's a difference between here, the head, and, and the hands, and the action, and, and living in a certain way. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a vast gulf, let alone between intellect and emotions, but between intellect and a lifestyle change, it's a huge, it's a huge gulf. So I can know that smoking is not good. I can know it, but until I feel it, until something gets into me to the point that I experience something, whether it's feeling that life inside me, or whether it's feeling that, that, that fear, that mort- or feeling my mortality, when the doctor says to a person, 
You have only X amount of time to live if you can... Here's your heart. Here are your arteries. Here's your cholesterol. Here's your whatever it is. And it's because of X, Y, and Z. You have to change that. If it remains up here, I'll be able to rationalize it. When I feel it, when it gets into my... The essence of my being, in other words, when I start experiencing my own mortality, and I hit the point where I, I really feel like I don't want to die, and I want, or more importantly, I want to live, that's when something will change. And so here becomes the pair. Let me just say one more point, because I think this is the key point. And again, this is the key theme, I think. You know, last week we spoke about when you get in touch with your core, you'll live with that core. Depends on what you mean getting in touch with it. Because you can make an argument that when you get in touch with your core, you're going to live less with it. Let me explain. What is the key behind the greatest justifications that we come up with? The greatest, most powerful, and most destructive, but the most powerful... Dis- um, uh, what am I... What's the word I, I used? Justification. What's the most powerful justification, that, the style of justification that we come up with? It's that I'll be okay even though I'm doing this. That's the most powerful justification. Is that even though I'm doing this, I'm still okay. Think about an individual that it, through their actions is harming somebody that they love. So again, if two people and a person through their actions is harming somebody else, so how can they do it? Oh, why? Oh, so what does that mean? What does that mean? Exactly. As long as they don't find out. As long as they don't find out. What's the vart over there? What does it mean? What does it mean? Because as long as they don't find out, what does that mean? We're okay. And they're not going to get hurt. And we're still connected. We're still, we still have that tight bond. Right? We're still connected. I can look at myself. And I can say, you know what? This behavior, this is, not, this is unbecoming of me. It's pastinish. It's not, it's not befitting for me. But then I look, so how do I justify it? Because I look at myself in the mirror and I say, you know what? I have such deep, essential... Va- My core is so good. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter what I do. I can't... Right? In other words, I have an inherent goodness. No matter what I do, I'll still be good. No matter what I do in the relationship, I still love the other person. Why? Because I decided that. Because I decided that no matter how much I hurt them, I still love them. So therefore, it doesn't make a difference. It doesn't make a difference that I'm hurting them. Why? Because Be'etzim, deep down in the core, I love them. Is that healthy? What you're using is the core truth to justify the exact opposite of what you want to do. Not what you want to do. Of what, you, of what your core value is, so to speak. In other words, you're using the core as the greatest tool against itself. You're saying, since essentially we're connected, 
or with a child. Essentially, I'm, I'm the parent and that's the child. And essentially, I love them and that's not going to change. So I can neglect them. I can let myself off the hook by telling myself, in other words, the more I get in touch with my core, the more I can say, it doesn't matter what I do. Because my core is, un- is unbreakable. It doesn't matter what I do, because my core is there, my core is, is, in, is intact. I still love them. It doesn't matter that I'm doing X, Y, and Z. It doesn't matter that they're miserable. It doesn't matter, because I love them. Talk about a distortion. right? It doesn't make sense, right? But we make it make sense. We make it make sense for us. If you think about any justification... And we all we justify all the time. Any justification worth its justification certificate degree is is likely going to fall along these lines. Ah, maybe that's too it's too sweeping. Many a justification falls along these lines. The justification is, I'll be okay, even though I do this. I'll be okay. I'll bounce back. There's always tomorrow. I know this is not good, but it's only one moment, it's only one time, and no one will know about it, it doesn't make a difference. What, is all, what does all of that mean? Without Rebbe says in Tanya is, I can say to myself, I'm still connect, I still have my spiritual connection, even though what I'm doing is defying that spiritual bond, because I'm acting completely opposite of that, but I, but I convince myself that I'm okay because, it's, because the bond is deeper than that. And even though that's true... But it's a distortion of the truth. Because if I really not only knew the truth, but I experienced the truth, how could I ever do the exact opposite of that truth? And so therefore, let me just sum up, sum up and then I'm going to get to the, to, the, to the question or comment. To bring a full circle, there's two ways of getting in touch with. One way of getting in touch with is up here. And that leads to the opposite. Because once I know that I have that core, that lets me off the hook. You're with me on this. Once I know that that's the core, game on, baby. That's it. I can do whatever I want. Why? Because I know that nothing that I do is going to change that. So that's, I can tell, I can tell uh, the one that I profess to love, it doesn't matter what I did, I still love you. But if you really love them, why would you do that? It doesn't, it doesn't add up. But the contradiction comes because I tell myself up here that I have a core. And so once we're still stuck in the mind, the mind will justify anything and twist everything around. The mind is the greatest contortionist that we have. It can fit into any small space. It can, t- it can right, it's like, what, what is that? Um, Cirque du Soleil or whatever it is, these, these circuses... Maybe, I don't know, if they have contortionists. Contortionists. You can fit into anything, you can flip upside down, you can twist and turn, and make everything look normal. Quote, unquote, normal. Look okay. It's not okay. You profess to love. Yeah, I deeply love. And I know that nothing that I do is going to affect it. So therefore, that lets you off the hook of, of actually expressing the love and doing what... It doesn't make any sense. So where, therefore, what's the opposite of that? It's getting in touch with that core, not up here. But when you experience that core, when it hits you in a way that you feel it, not only emotionally, but when you feel it viscerally, when you feel it, and you feel that love, and typically when does that happen? When the other person says, I'm leaving you. 
and you say, holy expletive, I don't want to lose this. I now feel how important this is. I now feel how important this is. And may, maybe it will work, maybe it won't work, maybe it's too late, maybe it's not too late. That's another discussion. But there's a difference between when you know something is a core truth, core value, essential truth, or whether you feel it. And when you feel it, how can you not live with it? How can you not live by it? Funny. Uh, Say it again? When you brought up time, yeah. you sort of touched on it. And basically what it is is that we have two souls, a godly soul and an animal soul. What you're describing is a debate with someone with the animal soul and trying to rationalize it. And it and it and it's linear. Right. Whereas the key is that the godly soul has a perspective and is connected to something greater than what I want to do right now. Because I know that it's more it's about eternity. And I think that what the key is is to to be the godly soul to do what it takes to do. No, I'm with you. If that's more evolved, if that's the one that's controlling the, the vehicle of the human being, then that allows you to not succumb to that. To that's so, but that's when the debate is between something godly, something ungodly. And, what and what I'm saying is, no, with you. The distinction that I wanted to highlight, though, based on our discussion last week, is the difference between understanding and experiencing. Because it's one thing to understand that I have a higher purpose, that I have a godly soul, that I have a deeper spiritual truth and connection, that I have a love within that, etc. It's one thing to understand that, but it's an, but that understanding doesn't always affect the bottom line how I actually live. It's it's experiencing that. It's feeling it. Isn't what he's saying, like if you think long term, eternity? Right, so, right, so, yeah, no, 100%. Right. 
Right, well, I'm running to say the difference between kind of instinct, like animal instinct, which is more of a, like a, the quick, you know, the animal impulse, as opposed to something more methodical, thought out. What I'm saying, though, is on a more subtle level, any time it's, it's a rational consideration, it's susceptible to a bad choice. You're always, because you can always justify. What you can say is, yeah, but if we're really looking long term, then this little short action that I'm doing is really not going to affect that anyway. So I'm still going to be intact. So here's the thing. So, so think about that. Think about that. That meditation, because it's a meditation. Meditation means when you think about something and it produces a result. So that meditation of I didn't have it all month, that could lead you to two different conclusions, opposite conclusions. I didn't have one all month, therefore I, I'm, I can have one. Or if I didn't have one all month, therefore why should I start now? I'm saying it's the same, the same... The same meditation can lead two different directions. No, 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 I'm not making a judgment. What I'm saying is, my, my, the bigger point... Why did I go to that The bigger point is, any time we're using our minds to think about something and then make a conclu- come to a conclusion, it's, it's pretty much a flip of the coin, or it's pretty much going to be the way we're programmed, to, the way we train ourselves to do it. There's no, you're not guaranteed to make the positive choice when your mind is being used as the guide here. Right, but like in that example, it's clear to me because like the caffeine gives you like a high that you feel good. So then it's like the brain wants to say, oh, it's good. Right. Or it's like what Marine was saying, it's the momentary high as opposed to the, the feeling low. But isn't that every negative choice? The person that acts in a way, and you know, we're just going to, we're speaking very vaguely, the person that acts disrespectfully to their spouse does something that, that it profoundly disrespects the other, right? Or there's somebody that does something that profoundly disrespects their child or profoundly disrespects their own... In this case, it's really... Not profound, I'm using big words here, but... You know, that, that, that does something less than what, what they're... It's because in the moment, the other choice felt good. It's always because of that. It's because, oh, in the moment, it felt good, it, 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 it sounded good, it, and I told myself, you know what, it's not going to break me. It's not going to destroy me. It's not going to destroy what we have, or what I have, or what you have. It's not going to destroy the core. It's just, it's just this. That word, it's just, which is really two words. But it's just is justified. I love that. A ju- what's a justified? This is brilliant. What's a justification? When I say it's just one time, it's just casual, it's just a word, a this, a that, a letter. It doesn't make a difference. Whatever it is, whatever it is, we don't have to peg anything down specifically. Whatever that is, whatever that quote unquote violation is, I justify by saying it's just. Not justice and righteous, but it's it's only it's not uh, I'm not. I'm not destroying everything. I, I. I love the. I love what we have. But it's just that's the problem. Oh, so, but what's what's the point? The point is not to pinpoint problems. It's not the point. Pinpoint problems we can do all day. The point is to understand the difference between knowing what our core value is and feeling or experiencing our core value. Knowing it. 
can lead me to justify stuff that goes that defies it. Again, it's the same. It's that great example that you gave. It's okay. I know that healthy, that being healthy is important to me, and I know that I've la- I've, I've I've not had this thing that I that I believe is unhealthy. I know I, I know I haven't had it for a while, so therefore I'll have it. As opposed to saying I feel that immediate, I feel like I need to live in a certain way. I'm experiencing that, so therefore it's not up for negotiations. It's not up for. Justification is not up for the mental acrobats and the uh, contortionists. That's what I was looking for. Rationalizations. What I hear you saying is there's really three parts to it. One is the intellectual part that you're talking about. We can understand something and the ramifications. The other is, oh, I feel it. Uh, I feel like I should do this. I'm convinced that I should do this. But the third part is the most important is bringing it to the street and making it part of your life. By the way, we've missed you here Sundays. I'm just saying. <laughs> exactly. The third element is where you actually live it. And so here's my point. You have almost, if you were looking at a, um, at like a continuum, at like a timeline type thing. So let's, so work with me here. It's, we're going to do a, something linear. Your core essence is going to be point number one. It's going to be the first point, point in this line. And then your action, in other words, how you live, is going to be the most external, the, out, the most outer point. So there's how you feel, like the deepest truths that you know and feel and believe, like the deepest core truths, are all the way in the inside. And what you actually do, what you actually pick up the can or put down the can, what you actually do is all the way at the end, that's the most external. How do you ensure that there's going to be consistency there all the way through. So that we don't live all disjointed. So that we don't live where our core is here and our actions are... Down there. I'm looking for like a far off city. I don't even know. Somewhere in, in, in uh, Costa Rica, huh? Timbuktu. Thank you. I like Timbuktu. Is Timbuktu, where is Timbuktu? It's in the east? If you want to know, really. So here's the deal. How do we ensure this? How do we ensure that we're living? And the answer is, it's not by knowing truths. It's not by knowing truths. You can know a truth. You can know that this is your core principle. And you can live something completely. You can can act in a way that defies it openly. Why? Because you tell yourself that's my core principle. Therefore, I don't need to act on it. Because it's so core, it's so deep, I don't need to do it. What we're talking about is, how do you ensure... That you are right, really. Right, right, I'm, I'm just, I'm just picking up where you, where you, what you said is the real test. The real test, if we're living with our, if if we're really in touch with our principles, is if we're living with them. The real test of somebody truly recognizes how important the other person is is not when they profess that in words or in a card. It's when they actually live in a way that demonstrates that. That's the clear, right? Everyone agree with that? I agree with that. I just said it. <laughs> Clearly. It's when you live that way. When I'm living in a way that's respectful and loving, etc. So that's the greatest testimony. That's the greatest demonstration. That's living my core. That's not saying, well, because I love the other person so much, and so essentially, so I'm going to disrespect them now, because I let myself off the hook, because I love them anyway. 
So what does it make a difference? It's just one act of disrespect. That means that I'm not... Yeah, does it make sense? Yeah. How do you get there? How do you feel it? You know, yeah. there's a great article in the Times, a discussion on addiction. Yeah. It's like six different people. Is this recent? Yeah, this week. And it's here. And, you know, the most successful people at, at kicking addiction have high accountability. They have a group that supports them. They go week to week or several times a week to have the support of that group. It is seen as a day-by-day daily renewing that affirmation, that intention. It's hard work. It's like studying Torah. It's like coming together in a group. You have to dedicate yourself to it, and, and the consequences have to be dire. You have to have the threat of being cut off from your family, being cut off from all income, being cut off from health. It, it, you know, it, it's a, but maybe it's your question, but how do you get there without that feeling of threat? Is that your question? But maybe... So the question is if you can get there just intellectually. That's really the question. I think it's hard. I think it's hard. I think you have to feel it. I think that's what we're getting to. You have to feel it. But in essence, the way to give the most chance that there is consistency between our core and our actions is to bring God into our life every day to feel God, not to rationalize God, but to feel God. Yeah, I think that's what we want to move toward. We want to move to more experiences where we feel it, as opposed to experiences, as opposed to moments where we're just, where we're just, where we're just understanding it. Well, that would be a way of acting, behaving, doing an action that's consistent with your core spiritual truth. Any mitzvah that we're doing is, is an action that's that's perfectly consistent with our spiritual core. But the question is, how do we get in touch with that spiritual core? Not in a, not an intellectual way, but a feeling way. I, I'll tell you what it says in the books, and I'll tell you what I found in my experience. And that's what prayer is about. The Talmud asks, "Ezehu avoda shabalev." What is considered to be quote service of the heart? Avoda service shabalev of the heart. Zutfila. This is prayer. Prayer is not meant to be an experience where you're reading words on the page, whether they're in Hebrew or in English or any language that you know, and you're just, oh, interesting. So God is the one who created everything and takes care of me. Great story, bro. And you shut it. That's not prayer. Is meant to be an experience that actually moves you. Moves you in a way that you can't put in words, maybe. It's hard to describe in a way that you can't rationalize, but it's, it's really meant to create a shift in how you feel. So that you experience a, true, a deeper truth that will then shape your day. And that's why we pray in the morning. We pray in the morning so that before we start the day, the work element of the day, or the, you know, whatever part of the day, that can, that can derail us and throw us off the rails, where we can start justifying things that aren't in concert with our deepest truth, with our essential core. Whether it's our spiritual core, whether it's just our, you know, biological core of, of, of good habits and healthy living and, you know, not get making a deal with the mafia because it's probably not good for my life, right? Like, just core essential values on that level. How do you get there? So the, the age-old way is, is prayer. But in order to pray, you can't just pray. How are you going to pray? You just open up the sitter and start praying? You're not going to know. <laughs> how are you going to get there? 
Oh, wait, wait, no, so what I'm saying is, how do you get there to prayer? You've got to warm up, you've got to warm up the car, you've got to warm up the engine. You've got to study a little bit before, ah, not so easy anymore. So you've got to study something. Now, studying, yeah, but it's intellectual. So that's why you study, you study some chassidus and Kabbalah, you study some, some Jewish, you study some, some, what we would call, there's different parts of Torah. There's the body of Torah, which are the laws of Torah. Then there's the soul of Torah. That's what we study. We study the soul of Torah, neshama, neshmasa daraisa, in Aramaic. More Aramaic. Right? It's the soul of Torah. You study the soul, you get in touch a little bit with... More, uh, if, you're study, if, you're, if you're involved in soul, you're more likely to start feeling your soul. And when you feel your soul, now you're ready to pray and get more in touch with your soul. And by the time you're done with praying, ideally, on a good day, you should be feeling, not knowing what your core values are, but you should be feeling them. You should be feeling more in touch with, with, who, with your essence. So that as you now enter, as you now drive to work, as you now begin relating to all of the challenges that come your way, you're going to approach them in a different way because you feel a certain way. And that way is unshakable. It's not that you know that you should be... You know, again, justification about, about, about dishonesty is like, okay, well, I'm a good person, so I'm just going to lie. Right? That's, 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 I'm a good, I'm, essentially, deep down, I'm a good person. So that lets me off the hook to do some, a little bit of lying, cheating, and stealing. Because I know that deep down, I'm really a good person. Hello. You're using your essential core as a justification. But that's only when you know that you have an essential core. Not when you're feeling, not when, you, not when you're living from that place. When you're living, when you're, when, when you're, when you experience that. Not when you know that you have that experience. When you f- actually feel that core. You're going to act in a different way. So for me personally, when I go to synagogue or at my nephew's bar mitzvah a few weeks ago, you know, I can say these prayers. But you're not... I feel it. Uh, So that's one of the greatest challenges I think that we've always faced. But in our society today, maybe a little bit more. But I I don't know that it's ever been easier. I don't know. And by the way, I don't know that, that it's easier for me. Having grown up with praying every single day and, you know, religiously... That doesn't make it a deeper experience by default. In fact, one could argue that the more you do it, the more it becomes like, you know, just something you do. Not not only second nature, but it's like brushing your teeth. You're not thinking about it. It's habitual. And it becomes like, you know, it just becomes, yeah, let me just, let me just, okay, do this, do that, do that, check, check, check. And now we're, we're off, we're off and running. So I don't know, I, I, I'm, your question. Maybe it's more inspirational for you. So here's, but here's the point. I'm, I'm not. I'm, uh, what, I, what I haven't yet offered is an answer. What I'm, I'm agreeing that there's a that there's a challenge. What I'm saying is a few things. First of all, number one, I don't. I think there's always been the challenge. And when the Talmud says, "What is the service of the heart? It's prayer." I don't think they were saying, "And therefore it's easy," or "Therefore it's a slam dunk." And therefore, what they're saying is, you got to work at it. It's like any work. It's like work. How do you get good at work? You got to work hard. You got to. You got to. You got to work hard. You got to think about it. You got to get creative. You got to. So there's no what I'm what I'm actually saying is there's no shortcut and even if your 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 thought your notion of 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 how it's going to work is okay I'll do it every day that also is not necessarily going to work because you do it every day it's going to become just habit and that's also not going to guarantee a deeper experience what it takes is effort there's no shortcut for actually investing yourself and I think that's what Nina was saying is like there's no you want something to work whatever it is you want something to work. You want to be consistent? You want to be authentic? You want to live authentically? Live on the outside. Authentically like on the inside? 
What's the shortcut? There's no, how are you going to get away with it? There's no, it's, see, maybe the modern challenge is that we have expectations that everything should be easy. Maybe that's our challenge. I, I, I will tell you, without having been around longer than 35 years, I will tell you that it's never been easier. Adam and Eve also had a difficult, they also sinned. It's never, it was never easier. Maybe the only thing that shifted nowadays is the expectation that things should be easy. I think back in the day, they knew th- things required hard work, and they were willing to do the hard work. Life was always about hard work. You wanted to eat, you got to work the field, or whatever it was. They had to wake up early. There was no sh- Life didn't really have shortcuts for, for most people. Today, we fetch about first world problems. You know, we all know, like, oh, uh, uh, you know, back in the days of the Blackberry, there used to be like these outages with Blackberry, like with the, right? Right? There used to, I say back in the day, not, if anybody has Blackberry, I'm not at all, I'm not at all dinosauring you. It's not, there's not, but for me, it's been a few years since I've had, a, since I've had. The point is like, there were these outages, like, oh no, Blackberry, BBM, Blackberry Messenger is out. Oh no, how am I going to communicate? We have an expectation, perhaps today, more than ever, of things, they should be easy, they should be quick. And the world tells us the instant, instant dinners, and instant this, and instant that, and disposable that, and that. Things should be easy. The reality is that anything worth, in general, in life, here's a rule of thumb, maybe there's a bumper sticker, anything worth having is something that you had to work hard to achieve. And you look at, story, you look at let's say, Judaism. What is the most celebrated holiday? What is the absolutely most celebrated holiday? Passover. Passover. Maybe Yom Kippur. No, Yom Kippur also. But let's let's th- celebrate Yom Kippur. Right. Well, that's right. Let's talk about a holiday that we eat out, that we eat. Right. So, what's the most celebrated? And, the, and the, I think the percentages are something like ninety-two percent of Jews worldwide participate in a seder. And by the way, eighty-nine um, percent of statistics are made up. But that's. <laughs> But that's another story. I believe I saw that somewhere around 90% of Jews participate in some form of a Seder. Now, the question is, why is Passover so ingrained? I'll ask you another question. Put that question aside and I'll ask you another question. Which holiday is the most work? To prepare for? There's no, it's not even close. Not even close. You gotta clean, you gotta cook, you gotta buy stuff, you gotta pay overpriced amounts of fees and what. It's like the investment that you make is exponentially greater than any other holiday. And guess what? You cherish it more, you observe it more, you feel it more, you identify with it more because of that investment, precisely because of the investment. Ah, oh, Shavuos. And, and no one knows about it. Shavuos, all you have to do is show up and eat cheesecake and ice cream. And no one knows about it. Nah. No, but that's, that's exactly the point. The holidays that are the easiest are the ones that are the most forgotten. That's the way it is. Another good example is that um, if you close your eyes and you think about one of your greatest accomplishments, a lot of Jewish people think about their bar mitzvah. Right. And how long does that take and how hard is that? Exactly. What's the greatest accomplishment? It's typically going to be associated with something that you had to work for and you achieved and you were proud of it. So what's, what's my, so in short, just to kind of box in the answer. The ch- we got the prayer by, well, wait, wait, wait one second, I'm, I'm about to get, so we got the prayer by saying, so how is it that we actually get in touch with that core? on a daily basis, consistently, without having to get bad news, without having to be a victim on some level. Like, that's not a positive experience. 
So, my answer is the typical traditional... Good morning, good morning. The typical traditional approach is the, is the prayer route. Is you go a route of working hard to, to get in touch with that core. There's no shortcut. So it's prayer. So prayer is also not a shortcut. It's not like an instant prayer button. Yes. To get into our core. Mm-hmm. I think, too, kind of reverse how we allow others to treat us. Yeah, sure. And that is living. That's also reflective of how in touch we are. 100%. Right? So that if you know someone abuses someone else, the someone else has to go into their core to honor themselves and not allow it. And that also can be twisted and distorted. And the person can say, well, I'll allow it because I know that at the end of the day I'm untouchable. That's a distortion. You are untouchable, but because of that, why are you letting somebody do that? In other, in other words, you can still justify, you can still twist it. There's always a twist. No matter what you're talking about, there's always going to be the potential for a twist. Yeah, oh yeah, and, and, and at the end, anyway, I know I'm a good person, no matter how much the other person tells me I'm a, I'm a good for nothing. God forbid. And that's not healthy. What's healthy is to say, no, wait a second. I don't deserve this. Etc. Hey, we're not giving, this is not, you know, we're not, we're not, this, we're, I'm not, my, the point today is not to dispense general life advice and relationship advice. This is not this is not a general I'm not a you know general practitioner like dispensing general advice. This is these these are we're talking about ideas here. And the difference between when you feel something or know something. The difference between knowing that you have a core and therefore living in disconnect with that as opposed to feeling that you have a core and living in concert with that. That's really the this one distinction that I think I didn't make last week. That was the scene. That was a little bit of a it's a little bit of a, like a, like a. What I'm doing is imagine if we had strobe lighting, strobe lighting, and I would be doing the robot, and you'd be like, like, like a little bit like shaky, jerky, like not not smooth. That's where like we look for a smooth experience. We look for a very smooth Kabbalah experience. Listen, say it again. <laughs> yeah, but we look to smooth it out as much as possible. As much as possible. So the other day I was watching um, CNN. Usually watch Fox, but CNN was on on the And I had no idea what the program was about. But this man, they were interviewing a man that his face, he just looked genuinely nice, good person. Mm. And I'm like, let me turn it on. Let's see what that. It just he attracted he right. my attention, and he just—it looked like who he was was expressed in his face and gentleness. There was something about him. But I turned it on, and it turned out he was Jewish. I'm like, oh, cool. <laughs> and then it turned out he was from Israel. Nice. Doctor from Israel. And and I was hearing the interview, and what it was about wasn't important, but I just. 
person that he looked like he was living, who he was was on the inside and the outside. Yeah. And that's what we that's what we want to get to. That's an that's an ideal. That's a very big ideal for us in our lives. Consistency, what I would call authentic living. That's the phrase that I want to use. Authentic living means not only do I know that I have an authentic place inside, but I'm actually living with that place. With that inside core, I'm living on the outside. What I do and what I say and how I think and my facial expressions, all that is going to express. That's, the, that's, 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 a, that's a very big goal. That's a very big goal. Now, so now we're ready. Now, well, now I think we're ready to tackle chapter 7. And the goal is, just so you know, the goal is to conclude chapter 7 today. We have enough time. And there's, uh, if you notice the title, the subject of our email was The Flame. Oh man, what was it? The Flame, the Harp, and the Tarmadoy. Right? You're with me on this? We're all we're on the same page? What page are we on? David? 54. 54. Okay. I'm coming right back with some more copies. Hey. Oh, hey there. Because we're recording live. Hold on. All right. The candle, the harp, and the tarmadoy. Okay. So here's the deal. I, I just, through the magic of television, I have now copies. What's, what's the connection? I don't know. But here are copies. If anybody needs, please take and pass around. Or you can even in the... By the way, I know we're mentioning Passover... My, my, my train of thought there was you can pass around or pass over the copies. And then my follow-up thought was Passover is in less than 60 days. Wow. Yesterday was the 15th of Adar. Rishon, the first Adar. So in a non-leap year, it would be 30 days from today. In a leap year, it's 60 days or from yesterday, 60 days from yesterday. So get your, uh, get your Passover on. What? 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 Oh, Jewish leap year, an extra month. Just throw it in. No additional charge. Okay. We're on page 54. 54. Yeah? Okay. 54. Hanukkah lights. Hanukkah lights. All right. Top of 54. What we just said was that in the story of Hanukkah, when the Jews of ancient Israel got in touch with their core spiritual truth, with who they were, with their core spiritual identity. Do you have, do you, do you have the book now? Um, if you don't mind, look in. Do you know where Rabbi Shusman's office is upstairs? It's the first, when you walk upstairs, the first office on the right, there's a closet. It's Devorah, Devorah's classroom. Look in the closet over there on the shelf. There should be a book called something like you be the judge or something. It's like a, you'll see, it's like a small paperback type thing. Okay. Okay, so, when, the, the idea here is like this. When you get in touch with your core spiritual truth, which we're referring to as the Yechida. The Yechida is the essential core of who you are. 
What that does is it transforms the way you... Not, not that you get in touch intellectually, but you get in touch by feeling it. That will transform what you do and how you live, etc. And then the final point we said on 52, we're about to get into 54, is that it affects the animal soul as well in this context. In the context of the spiritual core, it will affect your, your whole being to the point that your animal soul is transformed to where it, it no longer stands in opposition to what your godly soul wants. But you become so seamless all the way through, so authentic all the way through, that even the animal soul that tried to convince you out of good stuff beforehand comes on board and, and, and joins in the, in, the, in the spiritual party. Alright, so let's take a look now at 54. And here we explain why there are eight days of Hanukkah and eight menorah lights. David, please Can take I it away. Can understand why the lamps of Hanukkah are different from the lamps of the Beit HaMikdash, both in number and in their time of kindling? Hanukkah represents the service of self-sacrifice that stems from the level of Yehida, which transcends the human structure of Hishtar Shalut. There are therefore eight Hanukkah lamps, since the number eight is related to the dimension that transcends Hishtar Shalut, as was mentioned above. Chapter Makes sense? Well, hold on, hold on. Let's explain. Let's explain. The question that he's asking is as follows, and we asked this question earlier in the discourse. Why is it that the lamps of Hanukkah the menorah, or the Hanukkiah, that we light on Hanukkah, is very much different than the, than the menorah that was kindled in the base of Mikdash, in the Holy Temple. In the Temple, the menorah was of seven branches. Remember we had a picture of the Temple candelabra? There were seven branches. There was a middle, a middle stem, three on each side. They were all the same height. No shamash that's higher than the others. They were all equally high. Seven in total. Our Hanukkah menorahs, or our Hanukkiyahs, have how many lamps? Eight plus one. So eight, it's the, the mitzvah, there are eight mitzvah candles, plus one assistant, one helper, and that one is taller. So our center stem is taller. And then you have the branches, the four on each side. Those are the ones that you light one each day, one, then two, then three, then four, till the eighth day you light all eight. Oh, you have a picture? You hold it up. Oh, you have. Okay, perfect. So some of you still have this copy. So you can see this is the Temple Menorah. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Our menorahs, our Chanukiyas, whatever, have four on each side with a taller center. Thank you, center stem branch, whatever. And so there's eight. It's getting better by the moment. This is incredible. Okay. I'd like to present into evidence <laughs> Exhibit A. Got to bring my A game. All right. So this is the this is our menorahs. Four on each side, one in the middle. These eight are the mitzvah. We asked the question all the way, all the way at the beginning. Why is it that if we're lighting, if we're lighting the the Hanukkah menorah in commemoration of the miracle that happened with the Temple menorah, so why doesn't it look the same? And why, do we, um, why don't we light a, a candelabra of seven? Why do we light a candelabra of eight? So what's the simple answer? The simple answer is eight days. Oh, it was an, a miracle of eight days. So what, are you gonna, uh, so what do you do the eighth day? Like, how does that work out? So obviously we have a candelabra of eight because it was an eight-day miracle. What's the follow-up question? So why was the miracle for eight days? In other words, like, why did God make it such 
that the miracle should be for eight days. That they should have to commemorate it with an eight day, with an eight flame, eight lamp candelabra. Why? Why not just, huh? To get the oil. So, why wasn't it seven? I'm saying you can ask the question: Why? How, why did it happen to work out with the number eight? That it's it's just one off. And the other question that we asked before was: In reality, there are only seven days of the miracle. Because the first day anyway was supposed to light. Because they had oil enough to last for one day. Which means that all they needed was of a, of a miracle. How many days of the miracle did they actually need? Seven days of miracle. So then the question becomes, so why are we lighting a can- Even if it took eight days to get new oil, why are we lighting a Chanukiah, a Hanukkah menorah, with eight flame, with eight candles, if the miracle anyway was only within the number seven? So we follow it up by saying, well, eight, and, well, there's a, the miracle is still eight, and it's not, uh, because even the first day, they poured in maybe only an eighth, because they divided it, and still the eighth lasted the full time. You know, there were, we had some different ideas when it came to that question. But the bottom line is, did you find it? Oh, he, he, okay, perfect. Okay, so the question then becomes, even if it's because of the miracle or whatever, what, what is the significance of the number eight? Because when you look at the menorah of the temple and the menorah that we learn on Hanukkah, there's a clear distinction. One is seven and one is eight. Kabbalah says it's a very simple answer. Seven represents nature. Seven is the natural order of things. Seven days of the week, there are seven heavens, Maimani speaks about. Seven is a natural order of things. Seven. Seven is nature. Eight. Eight is something else. Eight is the infinity. Eight is the supernatural. What does it mean for us? What does it mean here? What does it mean here? So you're telling me ethereal ideas. Nature and then supernatural. So what am I supposed to do with that? What does that mean for me? So let me make it very simple. Seven represents living life here. Living life here. You live your life logically. You live your life based on order and what makes sense. Problem is, it gets us in trouble. Problem is, it leads to inconsistent living. The problem is, it leads to inauthentic living. Because we can say, my core is this, but I'm living like that and I'm okay with that because I've justified it somehow. That's my seven. That's living seven. Typically, we live seven. What do you mean living seven? We live a seven type of life. I.e. we live logic-based life. We live in the box. The box of logic. It makes sense, or we can justify that it makes sense. We're good. What does it mean to live a life of eight? It means that I live from a deeper core that I can't explain. A deeper core that I can't rationalize. I live from a place of I know who I am, and I feel something deeper than my mind can explain. In other words, I feel so connected to the one that I love that I will do anything for them. Not that I'll justify doing everything to hurt them, but I'll do everything for them because I have such... In other words, when I get in touch with my core, a core that is not rational, that's, that's symbolized by the number eight as opposed to seven. So again, if you want to know the difference psychologically or spiritually, like personally, when it comes to seven or eight, what distinguishes seven or eight? Seven is living life Rationally, eight is living life, maybe spiritually, but it's more than spiritually. It's living life 
from a deeper place, a place that defies logic. Does this make sense? Yeah. Oh, where in in the world? Well, no, not even. You know, the truth is that you find it also in in even non kabbalistic sources, even like midrashic sources, talks about like the. The, the Torah says that there were seven days of inaugurating the Mishkan, the tabernacle. And on the eighth day, that's when it started. Bayom HaShmini, or Shmini Atzeret, Sukkot, the seven days of celebration, and then Shmini Atzeret and Simchat Torah, that's when the explosion of joy really comes in. It's like the supernatural. It's like there's the measured, there's that which is measured and limited. And typically what's limit, what limits things is the mind. The mind limits things. It organizes things. But in so doing, it limits, it limits the experience. And then the eighth is that full experience, the essential experience. You touch something deeper than the mind. Because the mind, again, can tell you, nah, don't worry, it's just one Diet Coke. It's not a big deal. But when you, but when you live from that place, and we're not railing on Diet Coke, I'm just, but, when you li- but, but the eight represents when I feel my core and no one can convince me out of it. Yeah. No, not even myself. The eighth, the eighth would be like the the actual living thing. You know, it says Oz Yashir Moshe when the Jews crossed the uh, the sea. It says Oz Yashir Moshe. Then the Jews sang Oz. The Hebrew word for then Aleph Zion. The numerical value of Aleph and Zion is eight. Uh, Zion is the seventh letter. Aleph is the first letter. So it's Aleph and then Zion. The one and then seven. So it's like the seven and then the one on top of it. It's like the, it's like the supernatural experience, the sea split. Would you say that it's like a place of, that defies logic? Yeah, it's beyond logic. It that just, no, well, defi- the question is how you define defies. Don't, don't get stuck on the word defies. It's, I, I, use, I like the word defy. In a, I use it in a good way. I use it in a positive way. That's just my personal usage of it. But it's, it's, if, it doesn't make se- if, if that word doesn't make sense, scrap it. It's a place beyond logic. It's a place much deeper than logic. It's a place that you can feel you can't understand. It's like if you try to explain it, yeah, yeah, once you try, yeah, it's almost like, exactly, it's almost like, once you try to package the core neatly, you're automatically doing it a disservice. Now, not that you shouldn't live with it, so you have to be careful with this, with this concept. The more you try to intellectualize it, the more you're moving away from it. But when you're really in touch with it, it will express itself on every level, down to the very, down to your heel, as we said, down to your fingernails, down to your action, down to every part of you. When you're in touch with it. When you're in touch with what? With your eight. With your authentic truth. Not with your understanding of authentic truth, but with actually that feeling, that place of authenticity. So that's why he says, Oh! Oh! You ready for this? The temple also had a menorah. Why does the temple have a menorah? The holy temple. They lit a menorah every single day. Why? Because you need light. You need clarity. You need need direction in life. That's always good. Hanukkah... It's not just direction, straightforward direction and clarity. Why? Because Hanukkah is symbolic of when, of when there's a challenge to everything that you know. So when things are going hunky-dory, when things are going yashar, when things are going straightforward, so all you need is the seven-branch seven candelabra. In other words, when your mind is functioning in a healthy way, so your, maybe your rationalization is a healthy one. You understand what you need to do. Things are going smoothly. Things are going well. So your mind is part of that 
part of that machine that's moving you forward in a good way. But what happens when there's a challenge to your mind? What happens when your mindset starts pulling you in a negative direction? When your mind says, let's do something destructive? You have to summon a deeper place within. Remember what we said, the, the Yevanim, the Syrian Greeks, that whole philosophy was to schlep us down from a place of, of intellectuality, from a place of sophistication. Because of that, you shouldn't do all of the mitzvot. You shouldn't, do, you shouldn't continue down this path because it doesn't make so much sense. How do you combat that? By going... By digging deeper, by finding, summoning a place that's deeper than the rational, that's deeper than the logic. That's the eight. That's the Hanukkah. So in the times of the temple, when things were going fine, all you needed was a seven-branch candelabra. All you needed was a seven-menorah. That, that provides straightforward thinking and, and etc. What happens when all of that thinking is challenged? Now you've got to pull out your eight. Now you've got to pull out your eight. Your eight flame candelabra. It's not, it's not higher. It's, it's, it's moving away from here. Because once, if I'm here, somebody can challenge that. Someone can challenge my logic. Well, it makes sense for me to do this. No, it doesn't. So now you're engaging in this battle. And maybe you'll win, maybe you'll lose, but you'll be, you're, you're being dragged down either way in the experience. Because you're, you're having to grapple with something. But imagine if somebody tells you that you don't have core value. You don't have essential value. Your soul doesn't matter. You say, what are you talking about? You come out and you say, my, my core doesn't, doesn't? Of course it does. You with me on this? That's the eight. The eight symbolizes when the core comes out, the essence comes out. And it's not a logical thing anymore. And then you say to the logic, thank you for trying to convince me that I don't matter, but you know what? I actually do matter. So even like sometimes in negotiation, like, it's stronger just to say, I just want to it. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, whether that right, whether that whether that is truly hitting the core, I don't know. It depends on the example, but you know, the example that Marty gave before, I think, was a very powerful example, and and how we expect to be treated, right? So somebody asserts, somebody can convince you maybe that you don't deserve to be treated in in such a way. So maybe they have a good argument. If you only did this or that, then you would deserve to be treated in such a way. Oh, well, I understand your argument, and if I did, and then you realize, well, wait a second. I, there's something deeper than the logic here, and, ba- and, and frankly, your logic offends me. <laughs> frankly, your logic goes against my core, my core essence, and that's, and, that's, and that's actually offensive. That is shifting from a 7 to an 8. So, I feel like the Olympic judges. So, right, I, so I would say eight. The, the key word for me, as you say, is the word from. Because when you come from that super rational, there is no choice but to be in the consistency with what you do. But when you come from the mind, the seven, then you can trick yourself. Oh yeah. But I, if you come from sure. the super rational, exactly, everything flows automatically. But you have to really be from there. That's the point. Not that I know that I have that, but that I'm actually from that. I'm actually standing in that place. When I finally, and it's very hard to get to that place, and we're talking about how to get there. It's very hard to get to that place. But if I am actually coming from that place, authentically from that place, then no rationalization, 
No, nothing will get in the way. It's like the example of healthy eating or smoking. When I'm thinking about, wow, it's really not a good idea, I can convince myself, maybe it is a good idea. Maybe just one, maybe just today, maybe just tomorrow. I'll convince myself. But when I'm coming from that place of my life is more important than any rational... My life, my life, then everything falls so, out of the way. And then the key is, like, how do you do it? And, and I'd say, you know, if you, cut, if you try, if you do tefillah, just from the, the, the mind side, it does, it's, it, you're just reading. Right. But if you come from at a different state of mind, a meditative... Or a, be, a different state of being, I would say. A, a different state of mind, really a, a, a medita- meditative, where you're at a different state, and then you do it, you're more likely to evoke that super rational yep. side. Yep, I agree. Now let's look at another distinction between 7 and 8. And this gets into the harps. An ancient harp that has not been... been, What do you do with the harp? Strum. Strum? You strum a harp? That has not been strummed in 2,000 years. Take it away. This is similar to the difference between the harp of the base Hamikdash, which had 7 strings, and the harp of the days of Mashiach, which will have 8 strings. It says in the Talmud... That the harp of the third temple in the Messianic era, the, the harp will have eight strings. Even and, and, and everyone's thinking like, okay, what is that like? Okay, like what are we supposed to do with that? It's like, oh, the seven strings is only our current era or back, back in the day. Oh, the, you, what, you, what is Mashiach? What is the Messiah? Oh, it's eight string harp. Uh, that's what the Talmud says, but it's still missing a little bit of explanation. Like, why does that capture the essence of that perfect time? Like, what, why is that? Why is an eight string harp so much cooler than a seven string harp? Really? And, it's what, it's, what, it's what I said. I don't know this. I don't know this. Shoot. Oh man, I don't know it. I'm, I'm like kicking myself. What is it? What is it? One louder. What is one louder? Goes to eleven. Oh no, no, no. By the way, eleven. By the way, wait, wait. You're speaking of eleven. Eleven is also spoken of in Kabbalah in the same way. Ten is also in the box. Ten is also kind of a, a natural, you know, um, you know, end a, 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 a numeric segment. Eleven is. One beyond. It also. Do re mi fa sol la ti. Do re mi fa sol la ti. Oh, that's. Oh, that's fantastic. Wait, wait. There's seven. There's seven things for. Oh, this. Oh, there you go. So maybe it does have a simple. Maybe it does. Maybe, but it's also reflective of the same concept. It has. Because everything, if it, there's a deeper, it's got to reflect itself in the, in, the, in the simple idea as well. So let's, oh, this is great. So, so what would you call them, scales? What would you call them, scales? Seven scales, good. So each, each, each harp string is one of, the, one of the notes, let's say. So what's the Mashiach? Oh, it's going to be eight. And the question is, what do you mean, what's eight? What's eight? Octave. Ah, oh, but we don't want to say repeating. We want to say you're going so much deeper that it's completely on a different level. It's a completely different level. Yeah. So let's let's continue. Even though. Even though the Beit Hamikdash is the holiest place in the world. Shh, wait, hold on. Wait, wait. Shh, shh. One second. Start again. Even though. Sorry. Even no, it's okay. Here we go. Yeah. Uh, even though the Beit Hamikdash is the lo- holiest place in the world, and especially lofty is the harp of the Beit HaMikdash, which embodies the concept of eliciting the divine name Havaya. Kinor, harp, contains the letters Chaf and Vav, the numeric equivalent of the name Havaya. And Ner, the soul of the man, the soul of man is a godly lamp. Yet it is only the ultimate of Seder Hishtal Shalut, 
it therefore had seven springs. Continue. In the days of Mashiach, by contrast, when there will be a revelation of the level that transcends Seder Hishtar Shalut, i.e. the higher name Havaya, what he's saying here, wait, I have to get to the details in a moment, but what he's saying here is very simple. What he's saying here is, in the times of the temple, no matter, how, despite, notwithstanding how lofty that experience was, how wonderful it was to be in the temple in Israel, etc., it still represented a natural, a, 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 a boxed-in spiritual level. It was still within within the norm, within the natural realm. So therefore, it was only seven. What is Mashiach? Mashiach is the whole world, every single person is in touch with their essential core. That's why there's not going to be any more fighting, there's not going to be any more jealousy, like kinna v'lesachris, this is what my mind says, there's not going to be any hatred, not going to be any jealousy, lo goy el goy one nation will not lift up arms against another nation, they will beat their swords into plowshares, etc. Why all these prophecies? Because we won't be at each, other th- uh, each other's throats anymore. Why? Because we'll all be in touch with our godly core. And we won't be able to justify by saying, yeah, but he deserves to be killed. That's the justification. So we're going to get to a place where we're all going to live from that authentic place. And from that authentic place, there's only goodness and peace and harmony, etc. So now, that wasn't a reality. Even when the temple stood, there were still wars, there were still fighting, there were still, there was, the, temples were, the temples were destroyed. So that still symbolizes a seven reality. A reality, a world, a world in a world of seven. Came along a harp of seven strings representing the divine name Havai. Now, that was the one part in there that probably was a little bit confusing. What he says here is like this. There's two, there's two dimensions of the name Havai. Havai is the Yurke Vavke. Havai is the Tetragrammaton. Tetra, tetragrammaton. That's Tetris. Ay, such a tough crowd. Anybody with me? Yeah. All right, it's never stopped me before, certainly. All right, I thought I did a great Tetris impression. Who knows that? You know, you're with me. I know Tetris. Thank you. All right, Tetragrammaton. Tetris is called. Te- There's four. Tetragrammaton is the four four letter name of God. Yud, Yud, followed by Hey, followed by Vav, followed by Hey. We don't actually pronounce it the way it's written, but it's it's the it's the, it's the holiest name of God. There, however, Kabbalah says there's two dimensions. There's the lower Havaya and the upper Havaya. It's like Lower East Side, Upper East Side. <laughs> it's all the East Side, but it's, there's Low and there's Upper. You get a Knish in one place and you have Italian in another. It's, it's a very different, right? You're with me. Sure. All right. Um, I speak the truth. So you, there's, it's a very different reality. There's the Lower, lower Havaya and Upper Havaya. They don't always mingle. It's like, you know... Anyway, here's the, here's the point. Lower Havai represents the divine energy, God's energy, the way it's invested within creation, within the box, to create the box. Yod is Tzimtzum, Yod is small, it's God condensing Himself. Hey is, the letter Hey is expansive, it's God expanding. Vav is Hamshacha, drawing down, Hey is expansive again. It's the process of taking God's infinite light and packaging it into a world. That's in the box. Packaging it into the world that we know and love. That's the lower Havaya. What's the upper Havaya? God as He is by Himself. I.e., not making Himself fit into the world, but God the way He is in truth, in essence. That's the difference between 7 and 8. On a cosmic level. 7 is God's light within the world. 8 is God's true reality beyond the worlds. 
In other words, are you tapping into God as God has made Himself relate to you? Or are you tapping into God as He is by Himself? That's the difference between 7 and 8. For us, it's are we tapping into our, the core of our soul the way it is, or the way we rationalize it? The way we diminish it to fit our perception or the moment? That's 7. If we tap into it the way it is, that's the way it is authentically. It's the question of, are you tapping into the authentic truth? That's the 8. Or are you tapping into a diluted, condensed, concealed, contracted version of that? That's 7. 7 and 8. So therefore, in the times of the Temple... The whole world, everyone was a reality of seven. In the future time of Shiach, everyone will be a reality of eight. It reflects itself in the harp. One thing he says is that the word kinar, which means harp, is comprised of four Hebrew letters. It's the only bold word on this page. It's right in the middle of the page in the Hebrew. Kinar. Kaf, nun, vav, resh. You take the, you take the first and the third letters. The kaf and the, kaf and the vav. The numerical value is 26. 26 is the same numerical value as God's name, Yud, followed by He, followed by Vav, followed by He. It's also 26. Yud is 10, He is 5. Vav is 6, He is 5. That's 10 plus 10 plus 6 is 26. Chaf is 20, Vav is 6, 26. And the rest of the... This is a little numerology. It's fine if you... It's, 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 it's just a, another layer to this. So Kinar is Chaf Vav 26, which is God's name, and Ner, which means it's the it's Ner Hashem Nishmas Adam, it's the soul of, the soul of man is the, is the lamp of flame of God. Bottom line is, it re- represents how God rests within the human being. God rests within the soul. But it's the way that we understand it, it's still locked in, it's still a seven dimension. Whereas when Mashiach comes, the harp itself the, what's gonna, what we're going to be in touch with within our own souls, collectively, is not, God, is not the soul as it is diminished, but the soul as it is in its authentic state. And his point is, Hanukkah represents that same authenticity, that same place. In the story of Hanukkah, the Jews and the Maccabees got in touch with their authentic self. They didn't rationalize it. That's what the Yavanim, that's what the Syrian Greeks wanted. They wanted a whole society of rational Jews. I'll do this mitzvah, but not that mitzvah. I'll be, I'll be committed up to a certain point, but not further. The Maccabees said, forget about it. This is who we are. This is our spiritual connection. This is our spiritual truth. And that's, and that's, and that's uh, you know, no holds barred. That's, that's who we are. And it's, it's going to reflect it. It's going to be manifest in everything that we do. That's why there are eight candles in the menorah. That's why there will be eight, eight strings in the harp in the Messianic era. Is Elohim the same uh, no, no, it's a good question because Elohim is also limitation. Elohim is even is even another level of limitation. Beyond, limit. yeah, okay. it's let's put it this way: it's all progressively going down. The point is, even though it's called Havaya, which seems like it would be beyond that, it's still Havaya as it lends itself to Elohim. That's how I would more specifically uh, refer to it. So here's the truth: we got to stop. <laughs> and so next time, and next time we talk about the Tarmadai and. This should knock your socks off. But we have to do justice to it. There's no, there's no mitzvah, or in Yiddish, there's no kunst, there's no trick to run through it and to miss the point. So we're gonna, that's what we do. We take our time till we understand it. Not only understand it here, but hopefully feel it. And then we, uh, and then we can move on. So next week, we're going to look at the Tarmadai. And what I want to do is also, take one step back. Take, take one step back with me. And what we're going to do next week, hopefully, is look at all of the differences between the Hanukkah menorah and the Temple menorah. The, 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 shape, the look of it, the location of it, the time that you light, all of the distinctions that we once raised at the beginning of this, of this book, and we're going to understand all of them from a, from a mystical, Kabbalistic place. That's all next week.
Thank you all for coming. Thank you. All right, quick announcement. For, for, for ladies tonight, there's a very special class.